This is Dan Fagell, and you're listening to AI in Industry. We've touched on a lot of different kinds of expertise in this month-long theme on using AI for competitive advantage. Artificial intelligence executives at Ernst & Young and United Health Group, these are big, big companies, and we end things by speaking with someone from the startup world. Uh, Not just any startup, but a very exciting unicorn, and that is Slack. Slack is in the team communications space, one of uh, arguably the best known company in that domain. And Adam Oliner is head of machine learning at this company. Adam speaks with us this week on the topic of building a data moat around your business when it comes to building artificial intelligence solutions. And I think he puts the overall theme of leveraging AI for kind of an unassailable advantage very, very succinctly, really ties a bow around the topic itself. And I think you'll get a lot out of this episode. So this is our final episode in 2020. I hope you'll really enjoy it. Uh, Adam was an excellent guest. And without further ado, we're going to fly into this episode. This is Adam Oliner, head of machine learning at Slack here on AI and Industry. So Adam, we'll kick things off by just getting your perspective on where AI fits in for a competitive advantage in business in general. When you think about how this technology can be leveraged in that way, what comes to mind? How do you like to explain it? Sure. Thanks, Dan. So first, it's worth pointing out that in general, the AI strategy and the business strategy should be the same thing. It's certainly true that data and machine learning can offer new capabilities or revenue streams, but the much more common case is that it helps the business do what it already does, but better. Uh, there's certainly a temptation to chase after you know the, the shiniest, latest thing you saw on some AI blog, but usually it's about making your core business better. And by better, I mean, in part, building better products, like products with less user friction or novel capabilities that differentiate you from the competition. But I also mean improving how you run the business, like keeping services running smoothly, improving customer service, enabling data-driven decisions, that kind of thing. And I could imagine someone listening and wondering how this is any different than a traditional business. Like, aren't you always trying to build better products and run a more efficient business? And I think the key point is that when you do this with your business's proprietary data and machine learning, you're also building a strategic moat. Jerry Chenet Greylock wrote a nice blog post about this, about why systems of intelligence are the new strategic moats that I think articulates my view on this. Uh, the, the crux of the blog post is that you want to create a virtuous cycle of delivering customer value using your proprietary data, which in turn generates more proprietary data, which allows you to deliver even more value, and so on. And eventually, without that data, it's effectively impossible to offer a comparable product or service. Yeah, the gap yeah. between you and the competition just becomes insurmountable. And I think you see evidence of this in the way that the most successful AI companies behave. Like you see them demonstrate that it is the data, not their algorithms or, or systems that are the proprietary advantage. Right? They open source their tools. They publish papers about their systems and algorithms. But you effectively never see them sharing their proprietary data because that data and the value they deliver from it, that is their competitive advantage. That's their moat. The story that I like to, the sort of anecdote that I like to, to share about this, about how powerful of a competitive advantage data can be, and that's the story of Google versus Bing, which I'll, I'll simplify drastically to make my point. Google had something like two-thirds of internet search traffic when Bing launched, I think. And Google had been accumulating data about what users searched for, what they clicked on, and so on. And they used that data to train better ranking and ad-serving models, making ad-serving, or sorry, advertisers and users happier and more successful with the tool, which meant that they used it more and generated more data. That was the virtuous cycle or the flywheel or whatever you want to call it. 
And Microsoft decided to go after that market and spent tens of billions of dollars on Bing. But they could never make it as good as Google because they never had the proprietary data necessary to make their models as good. They could never get the user engagement required to get the data, to build the models, to get the engagement. And again, I'm simplifying, of course, but the data matters and Microsoft didn't have it. And that's sort of the lesson from the anecdote. You can't buy those strategic data reserves, not even with tens of billions of dollars. You can't buy real user engagement, which is one of the things that's really exciting about doing machine learning at Slack. Our users are super engaged, which means we have tons of useful data that we can use to help make the product better. <laughs> yeah, and you got Microsoft chasing you down just the same as, uh, as Google did. So crazy how uh, history kind of repeats itself. I, I think that that anecdote is a really strong one to make the point. I think our audience will recognize the dynamic of data dominance that we've certainly written a lot about in that same flywheel effect. Just one thing I want to clarify, I guess, from your perspective here, Adam, is, is one, you mentioned how it really shouldn't be that much different than business strategy. But at the same time, we have this new moat effect of this flywheel that you articulated. Do you see sort of the right move being business leaders doing strategy as usual, but also taking into account this new competitive dynamic of AI? Like, do you believe that this new dynamic you articulated should just be kind of blended right in? I think there, there are ways to think about it that are different depending on what part of the business you're looking at. Like sometimes it's just about doing things slightly differently so that you can build those strategic data reserves. Like if you're considering how to architect a product, for example, you might think more about how you do your logging to ensure that you get the signals that you would want to later add in automation. For example, making sure you know what users clicked on, what decisions they made. Because that's where a lot of the sort of point solutions for machine learning come into play is you identify what are the decisions that my users are trying to make, and then you try to automate or, or sort of assist in those decisions. And that can make the product feel like it has less user friction. But in order to do that, you have to have instrumented them in the first place. And so as you're building your product, you might do it slightly differently to ensure that you can build up that, that data reserve. Got it. So again, business strategy, AI strategy, as you had said, I would certainly second it, should not be these sort of separate silos where, cool, the data scientists will do this and the business people will do that. Of course, they should be one and the same. What you're saying is, if we want to take this moat dynamic into account, we might want to build a product that permits us to have it. We might want to drive the kind of engagement that permits us to have it. We might even want to price our product that permits us to, to spin that flywheel. Do you think that sort of as we move forward and business people get more familiar with data science and also data science leaders get more familiar with the dynamics of business, that we will see that flywheel dynamic just be part of how people plan for their business, how they plan for their advantage? See it become just part of your strategic muscle. It's just the way that you think about building a product that someone couldn't come along tomorrow and just build and, and you know put you out of business. And I, I think you see other examples of strategic moats that people have sort of internalized because they've seen a lot of examples of it. Like an example of this is network effects. And I don't want to diminish the importance of network effects. The companies like Facebook use that to great effect to balloon into the juggernaut that they are today. Yep. And Slack recently released shared channels. So if you share channels with external people and yeah, companies, and yep, 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 yep. right? Network effects work, but that doesn't make them defensible. Like Facebook had a massive user base but Instagram just got mobile in a way that Facebook didn't. Yeah. And suddenly that massive user base was sharing their media on Instagram instead. And that moat had been crossed, right? It cost Facebook a billion dollars. But I think if you ask most business leaders, they would understand network effects implicitly, that it amplifies the word of mouth and other sort of spreading of your product and gets users onto the platform. 
I don't think that business leaders have internalized data as a strategic moat in the same way. I think it requires an, sort of an additional level of thinking about, well, you know, th there's multiple steps to it. It's not just like, oh, I have data and therefore I am strategically defensible. You have to have the data and turn it into customer value in such a way that it then generates more data. And that's a slightly more complicated argument than just saying, well, you know, there are a lot of people on the platform and that makes more people want to be on the platform. That's a much easier thing to understand. Yeah. So, so that the network effect dynamic, I mean, super commonly talked about in the VC circles and the startup world. But as, as you'd mentioned, the aspects of data are much more numerous. I'd really love for you to maybe dive into some of those. You've talked about a few things, Adam. You talked about instrumenting your product in such a way where you can collect and spin that flywheel in new and different and interesting ways. You know, we're talking now about network effects, which definitely are part of that flywheel for a lot of big companies, right? I mean, there's no doubt about it. The network effect helps build that moat for a great many companies that rely on on network effects. I think, you know, house might be an example here. We could talk about a lot of others. What are other aspects? What are other facets of assembling the data, taking into account the strategic value of data to build a moat? What else has to go into our business strategy conversations? One of the things to keep in mind is that as you collect more and more information about your users, you run in the risk of either violating privacy or, or just feeling creepy as a product. And I think depending on the type of business that you're in, this can either be sort of a subtle user interaction issue, or it can be a, a major legal issue, right? So we, as an enterprise company, Slack has customers that are in healthcare. And so we have to consider HIPAA and things like that. We have customers in countries like Germany that are interested in international data residency. And as you're gathering data and thinking about how to use it, you have to consider what are the ways that you can use it that are both sort of legal and respectful of the privacy of your customers uh, and also just doesn't feel creepy. Sometimes you can do something, but it doesn't mean you should do it. There are classic examples of this and going back many, many years, like when I think it was Target inferred that uh, a girl was pregnant before yeah, her father yeah, yeah. Classic this out, right? Yep, yep. Like classic examples of this. But that's true increasingly as you collect more and more data. And sometimes it can be difficult to know whether something will feel creepy until you try it, like recommending like, oh, you should go and, and join this channel. Well, that might be a fine thing to do in general, but depending on the content of the channel, maybe someone doesn't feel great about being recommended yeah. Okay. So you're talking about being wary of the privacy and creep factor elements, uh, that this is also maybe a new consideration that becomes heightened when we're talking about data and personalization. I think in general, there's a, an implicit contract with your customers that you're going to use the data to make their experience with the product better. You're going to deliver more value to them in exchange for you collecting some information about how they use it. And I think if you violate that contract, you can uh, alienate your customers or drive them away entirely. Got it. So that's another kind of, I guess, consideration. So we've got that one. You mentioned kind of instrumenting your product. I think the idea of being able to find more ways to build these data assets that would allow us to have a moat is a really, really big deal. And obviously business people, I would suspect, are, are very much not really thinking about their business through that lens most of the time. Where else are these opportunities to start collecting more data. I think people only really think, you know, in the common parlance, people think about collecting data from mobile apps. They think about collecting data from 
pictures of faces, right? This is what collecting data means to the to the layperson and to be honest, probably to a lot of the C-suite. But collecting data obviously can be all kinds of boring, weird, wonky, back-end, B2B things. When you think about instrumenting your environment, your business, to start building this, this flywheel of data, what does that even look like? How could business people maybe start thinking through that pair of goggles? There's a really nice video. It's called Humans Need Not Apply. And it talks about how AI is just another automation revolution, but instead of automating muscle, it's automating minds. So when you think about opportunities for machine learning, you think about what are the decisions that my customers are making? And if you think about, let's say you open Slack uh, in the morning and you you run through a series of actions, maybe you uh, click all in reds and you go through each of the unread channels and maybe you star some of them and then you go back to those starred channels later in the day or something like that. And you've made a bunch of decisions as a user of the product. And if you can record what decisions got made, you can later use machine learning to try to infer why the user made those decisions so that you can start to automate them. So for instance, it might suggest to you like, oh, these are the the messages that we think are likely to be most important to you because you starred things like it in the past. And if you do that well, it feels like it's less effort to use your product. It got smarter. But so when you think about what sort of data collection mechanisms you have in place, you should think about what are the decisions that your customers are making as they navigate your product. And sometimes this is just like a mouse click or uh, information they enter into a form field. Um, But there are also decisions that might not be as visible and you might have to think about how you can get information about why they made that decision so that you can start to automate it later. Got it. And do you think in order for business people to learn to think that way, they just need folks who are more data savvy in the room during the strategy meetings. I guess I'm. I feel like there's there is a bit of a cultural shift to require this. What what would enable that? Yeah, it's a good question. It's definitely think facility with data and sort of familiarity with it um, is always helpful. I don't know if you necessarily need a, a new person in the room, but I think understanding the, the sort of customer journey right <laughs> through your product, but also sort of getting to it in the first place. You know, you think through like where are they spending their time. Right? Where, where are they expending effort inside of your product? And I think that's just a good muscle to have anyway, when you think about the value that you're delivering, right? What are the places in the product that don't feel as smooth? And you don't necessarily have to be, as an executive, the one who is instrumenting the software, but you do want to identify, like, here is a path, a workflow through the product that my customers do all the time, and it takes a really long time. They don't love it. Can we collect more data about what they're doing there so that we can try to help them out? Got it. So yeah, hopefully that question that you had just asked is something that our listeners can maybe whip into their strategy conversations. I guess we'll we'll end on one more brief question, Adam, just being wary where we are on time. But I want to get your thoughts on this as well as this is part of the series. And that's really what business leaders can do today to start to take advantage of these competitive dynamics. You know, we we just mentioned a bit that they can start to integrate data into their strategy conversations um, and that, that they need to at least be data savvy when they go into those conversations. Is there anything else in terms of skills, resources, et cetera, that leaders should do to make sure that they're ready to be able to have a competitive advantage in the future with AI? And I think there are two key investments that set an organization up for success here, neither of which are particularly glamorous. One is machine learning infrastructure and the other is proprietary data, which we've already sort of talked about. Production machine learning systems are 95% infrastructure. 
This includes data processing pipelines, model training, model storage, prediction serving, monitoring, and so on. And you don't need all of it in place before you start to deliver value to customers, but you always need some of it if you're going to put a model into production and still sleep at night. And the good news is once that shared infrastructure is in place, you can focus on churning out new features and capabilities to users much more efficiently and with better quality than if you had different teams each implementing everything from scratch. But the investment required to get that infrastructure built in the first place, like those first few features that feel more expensive than traditional alternatives, that's often a barrier to entry for companies looking to start using machine learning. So if you're a business looking to use AI for competitive advantage in the future, I'd suggest looking for ways to begin building that infrastructure incrementally today so it will be there later. The second key investment, again, is to accumulate this proprietary data where you at least have some idea of how you might use it to deliver value to customers. And usually they're proprietary because they come from customer engagement with your product. So accumulating the, the data means building a product that users love and storing the data that manifests from that engagement. Even if you don't use the data immediately, it's a strategic resource that might make the difference later. So again, I think the, the two things here are proprietary data can't be faked and you need machine learning infrastructure to eventually capitalize on it. So I think you need both to have a strong competitive advantage with AI. Very well summarized here, Adam. One thing I'll just clarify on before we wrap is when you say machine learning infrastructure, you know, you talk about those, how much of a hurdle it is to kind of get all of that in place and how that's often a barrier to enterprise adoption. 1000% correct. I think a lot of people listening should be able to resonate with, with that sentiment and, and that statement. Question, when you say machine learning infrastructure, what are the components there? You know, I'm imagining a business listener tuned in saying, okay, well, we got to get our infrastructure together. What's the bounding box? What should I put in the bucket called infrastructure that I can bring up in, in my conversations? What, what is that composed of in your book? About machine learning algorithms, right? The things that most people who are, get really excited about machine learning talk about. It's like, imagine a small box in a big architecture diagram. And in that small box, it requires you to give this nice clean table as input and it usually outputs like a number, right? So you, you give it a bunch of features of a user and it predicts whether they're going to upgrade or not or something like that. And in order to get the data where you have, you know, exabytes of data or however much into a nice clean table that that machine learning uh, algorithm can use to build a model, you usually need a bunch of data processing pipelines of various kinds. And some of this might be doing data cleaning. Some of it might be doing data enrichment, like identifying objects and images or something like that. And so th there's a bunch of data processing and cleaning and preparation infrastructure that needs to be there. The second important thing is something to actually build the model. So model training is one of the other important boxes. And then model deployment. So you need something that's actually going to host the model and make predictions in your product when it, when it sort of is put into production and then monitoring to make sure it's healthy. And I think those with those four boxes, so sort of data prep, model training, prediction serving, and monitoring, you have more or less a sketch of the important pieces of that infrastructure. And it sounds like it'd be tough to necessarily build that unless you were building it for purpose, right? Like, okay, guys, let's do some model training for fun, just to build those core skills. It's like, what would you do? Like, we know in your book, does building that infrastructure imply plucking out your low-hanging fruit projects, starting to flex your muscles of actually using this data, because you know cleaning for its own sake is really tough to do. Do you think that this has to go hand in hand with selecting products that are or projects that are accessible so that we can start improving those four boxes? 
I think there are projects that only require a subset of those boxes. Yes. So for example, you might be able to find a pre-trained model online and use that to implement your feature. And so you don't have to train a model at all. And so now all you have to do is get the data clean enough that you can make predictions on that pre-trained model. Or you might be making all of your predictions offline. And so you don't need a lot of online monitoring infrastructure. And so you can strategically pick projects that only require sort of a subset of those pieces. Or another dimension that you can scale up or down is kind of the quality of the predictions. So this might be a, a less critical feature where it's okay that the predictions maybe aren't as good because it's not a, a life or death situation. And so you don't need kind of as much cleaning infrastructure because maybe it's okay if the data is a little bit dirty for that particular application. And I should say, a lot of these boxes increasingly are commoditized. Like you can go and find a dozen different options for infrastructure, like tooling for building models or doing monitoring, that sort of thing. A lot of the work comes in putting them all together, right? The glue code, not just hooking these four pieces that I mentioned together, but also getting it to fit inside of all of the rest of your infrastructure while being respectful of all the sort of like legal and other sorts of obligations that you have around where the data can live and how it flows and what contracts you have and that sort of thing. Got it. Okay. Well, I, I super appreciate being able to draw up those boxes and, and uh, elucidate a bit of sort of how they could be built on. I do think that increasingly we will see those conversations enter the strategy room. And I think it's conversations like this that help that happen. So Adam, thank you so much for being able to join us and sharing your ideas on AI and industry. Well, thank you for having me, Dan. So that's all for this episode of AI and Industry. Hopefully you've enjoyed this episode with Adam Oliner. If you're just getting started with artificial intelligence in your business, be sure to download our Beginning with AI PDF guide. It's a really succinct guide to adopting AI. Before you think about competitive intelligence, you obviously have to get started in the first place. Um, in terms of getting off on the right foot and reducing risk, download our PDF report. It's at emerge.com slash B-E-G-1. That stands for beginning. BEG1. So emerj.com slash BEG1. That's our beginning with AI guide. I hope you'll enjoy that PDF report. And I hope you'll enjoy the new series we're going to be kicking off in 2020. Our month-long theme for January is going to be buying and procuring AI in the enterprise. If you work within a big business or even a mid-sized company and you're interested in finding the right vendor, uh, January is going to be a whole month on how to do that well. And we talked to some very high up folks, uh, including the chief executive officer of Fractal Analytics as our first guest. So we're really starting things off with a bang and I look forward to catching you next Tuesday here in 2020 on AI and Industry. 